Du lytter nå til podcastversjonen av et forum for vitenskap og demokrati for Øyrek. Foredraget ble holdt av Helene Muri, forskervent er nu, med tema klimapiksing. Foredraget ble holdt i Kristi Café Naturhistorisk Museum den 24. maj 2018. Velkommen til dagens forum for vitenskap og demokrati. Og dagens tema det er jo da klimafiksing. Uh, altså da uh, vores mer bevisste forsøk på å endre klima i respons for de klimaendringene vi allerede har skapt. Uh, og med oss i dag, for, som hovedinnleder, så har vi Helene Muri her. Hun er da forsker nå ved NTNU, og har vært forsker ved uh, Universitetet i Oslo, og uh, har sin uh, Ph.D. fra Oxford University. Uh, jobbet litt som nitrolog, forstod jeg, før du uh, tog en postdoktor ved en katolsk universitet i Løvendal. Uh, har ikke gått nærmere inn uh, på ting nå, men uh, så har vi som kommentator Helge Drange. Han er jo forsker her, eller professor ved UIB og Bjerknesenteret. Han uh, kommer med en kommentar til Helene sitt uh, foredrag etterpå. Og så blir det diskussion etter uh, foredragene. Uh, med, uh, ja, og som den, som den siste tiden så tar vi opp då föredragen är och de blir publicerat som podcast för de som inte kan vara till stede. så under frågesrundan så visst du kan vänta på få mikrofonen så att vi får god ljudkvalitet till de som inte är till stede. Så, då var det is this science fiction only, or could it be a Paris Agreement's Plan C? Um, so solo geoengineering, I'll come on to defining that, but it's something we've been working on in Norway, in particular at the University of Oslo since about 2010, so eight years or so already of research. Um, yes, it works. So outline for today status of global warming, Paris Agreement, what have we promised, definition of geoengineering and then an overview of some different methods, so carbon dioxide removal, I won't go into any particular details on those, just to give you an overview, and then go into more details uh, of the solar geoengineering options uh, on the table. Uh, and then I've got some open questions that Henry uh, will probably also address. Um, and then some personal deliberations around doing uh, geoengineering research before I sum this up. So status of uh, global warming. On the left here you see the carbon dioxide concentrations that have been observed uh, since uh, 1950 or so. And we are now over 410 parts per million volume in terms of CO2 concentration. So that means that um, out of every million molecules in the atmosphere, 410 of those are CO2. Uh, and uh, on the right-hand side, if this is working, yes, you see them the global temperature change since the pre-industrial uh, in global monthly means. And you see that you're sort of spiraling out of control a bit when it's coming to the temperatures and we're approaching one and a half degree at quite a rapid pace 
Uh, and to put the CO2 concentrations into context, here is since about 1700, and you see since the Industrial Revolution how this has gone up very rapidly. Uh, and looking at the past 800,000 years, you see we've sort of kicked this into quite a new and different regime from our activities. Uh, and looking at the spatial distribution of this temperature change, we see at our latitudes, the temperature increase is extra rapid to um, different kinds of feedbacks in the Earth system, uh, particularly related to processes in the cryosphere, like sea ice cover. So here, the second warmest year on record, and the warmest, 2016, we're up to sort of two, two to three and a half, four degrees warmer at our latitude. So we should really take this seriously. So the Paris Agreement was a result of these kind of trends. Um, and in 2015, it was agreed to hold the increase in global average temperature to well below 2 degrees above pre-industrial level and pursue efforts to limit it to 1.5 degrees. So the mood was high in Paris and this was when jubilant. Finally, we managed to reach a degree after several decades of negotiations. So it really, it was quite a feat. Uh, when this agreement was um, reached. So looking at the CO2 emissions from fossil fuel use and the industry, right? So this is the kind of trend for the past couple of uh, decades or so. And we're currently emitting just about 37 gigatons of CO2 every year. So things are looking good for a while. Emissions were sort of stabilizing, but then over the past couple of years they have been going up again. So, considering this kind of pathways and the pathways we need to be on to reach these kind of Paris Agreement goals, I feel personally quite concerned because basically to reach this blue shading here is reaching the two degree target. You need to peak in CO2 emissions already now or by 2020, right? So these scenarios are from integrated assessment models, as we call them, looking at possible uh, socio-political decisions in the future um, and what kind of pathways they would lead to. So basically we need to now very steeply reduce the emissions, reach carbon neutrality already in the 2060s, 70s or so, uh, and become net negative, uh, and when you're not negative, it means you're um, basically taking more CO2 out of the atmosphere than you're releasing into it. And this orange shading here shows the kind of pathways uh, projected from the Paris Agreement and the um, national determined contributions to what basically every nation have promised to do certain amount of emission reductions up to 2030, and these are what we think might um, be reasonable futures based on what they have already promised. Uh, and these sort of emission pathways would get you to way above the two degree um, targets and more in the range of three, three and a half degrees in terms of global mean warming. 
So this is when we start talking about geoengineering because these kind of emission pathways are you know, kind of very far away from anything that we have been doing over the past decades. So the definition is deliberate large-scale modification of the climate system. So the keywords here are deliberate and large-scale. So you're doing something deliberately to, to ameliorate the consequences of um, of climate change. So just looking at the Earth's um, energy budget, because the amount of warming we have depends on a number of factors, including the amount of long wave absorbing greenhouse gases and you know the main energy source, source is of course um, solar radiation uh, which is then reflected at different levels either in the atmosphere or by the surface so the sum of all of these kind of fluxes determine how, how warm it is so we therefore have two kind of main groupings of climate engineering um, CDR, carbon dioxide removal which acts on the long wave part of the energy balance. So this would, for instance, be methods for actively removing car carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. <coughs> or you have uh, solar geoengineering or solar radiation management. And there are a few different um, uh, terms bouncing around. And most of these, they, they act to reflect short-wave radiation, either from aerosols, so small particles in the air, or increasing cloudiness, or the surface brightness, so less solar energy is absorbed, uh, absorbed by the surface, you can prevent warming this way. So here are some ideas for carbon dioxide removal, so I won't go through the details, we can discuss them later if, if you're interested. But they range from very basic measures like planting trees that would absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through photosynthesis, or putting, for instance, biochar, so partly um, burnt biomass, into the soils um, to sequester carbon um, that way. Or you have BECS bioenergy with carbon capture and storage which uh, involves taking biomass and converting it to energy and taking any resulting CO2 from these conversion processes and putting it underground into geological storage. So you're taking the CO2 from the atmosphere and putting it underground. So you're taking it out of this short um, carbon cycle. Or then you have uh, direct air capture, which uh, means basically um, scrubbing uh, carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it underground, but this is quite energy intensive uh, and costly at the moment. So several of these methods rely on CCS, so carbon capture and storage technology. Uh, and then you also have some methods for CDR in the ocean. Um, basically you can spread um, uh, um, calcium carbonates into the ocean, for instance, um, or ocean iron fertilization during iron in the ocean. So, different ways of increasing the chemical uptake of CO2 from the atmosphere. So, you have these fluxes, kind of enhancing these natural fluxes of CO2 
from the atmosphere and putting them into the ocean. So they're um, taking take been taken out of the atmosphere for for some time. And then you have this other category of um, of methods, largely based on reflecting short wave radiation. So solar geoengineering. So I'll walk you through all of these. Um, and we have had a project running, uh, funded by Klimaforsk, so the Research Council of Norway. Uh, it's concluded last year with partners from University of Oslo Meteorological Institutes and Uniclima here in Bergen. And we focused on these three uh, types of geoengineering. And we basically looked at taking this high emission scenario, the RCP 8.5 as it's called, and we tried to cool it down to this middle of the road scenario, RCP 4.5, by applying these three different uh, geoengineering methods um, individually. So you can then compare to what, what does a climate with these kind of CO2 emissions look like, versus a climate with these kind of CO2 emissions, but with this kind of geoengineering, so you can get a difference uh, in what, what are the different climate consequences um, in a three degree climate. So some of the results I'm presenting is from Journal of Climate, um, it's out on early online release now, um, with, with some people from Bergen involved. So first of all, stratospheric aerosol injections. So this is basically, it was based on trying to mimic volcanic eruptions um, by putting reflective particles in the stratosphere. So the stratosphere is the layer of the atmosphere that's about 20 kilometers up. Uh, it's very fine, the ozone layer. Uh, and we know by that particles here, they can reflect and scatter solar radiation uh, and cool the climate because you get less direct uh, radiation reaching the surface of the earth. Uh, and we know this works from the volcanic uh, analogy. So for instance, after Mount Pinatubo eruption in 1991, you saw this half a degree cooling uh, the following couple of years after this sort of one pulse emission of 20 teragrams of sulfur into the stratosphere. So we, we know that this could in theory work. Um, so you have um, several several different kind of options for delivering this uh, up into to the stratosphere, whether it's through towers, artillery shells or balloons. Um, Whilst the most uh, likely candidate seems to be using aircraft, so you can have several aircrafts um, at any one time uh, releasing uh, either precursor gases or um, or particles into the stratosphere. So you need to special build some some aircrafts for this, uh, and there are several um, potential particle candidates. Um, so, SO2 is typically released with uh, these volcanic explosive volcanic eruptions. 
But there are other materials, for instance, like diamond dust, where you can get the stronger cooling, but with a smaller amount, right? So, so it's more effective, but it's also a lot more expensive. <laughs> so you need to kind of measure up, you know, what's the most effective, has the least amount of reactions with the with the ambient uh, natural kind of chemistry, um, and so on and so forth. So we took the Norwegian Earth System model um, and applied uh, this kind of forcing and cooled down from this um, RCP 8.5 down to RCP 4.5 and compared to RCP 4.5, uh, so um, the climate without um, geoengineering and with medium emissions. Um, and you see that this you have this kind of residual warming at the high latitudes uh, because <coughs> of the way of this force way this forcing works because you're trying to reflect sunlight and for large parts of the air you don't have any sunlight at these kind of latitudes while the greenhouse gas warming it works all year around and Looking at the hydrological cycle, so precipitation minus evaporation, we have um, less precipitation globally, but you also have um, less evaporation. So you have generally not that large changes. So all the dots here they they show where the results aren't statistically significant. You know there aren't any large changes between this middle of the road scenario. Um, and the geoengineering scenario. Um, the next method, serious scrap thinning, this gets a little bit more complicated because this isn't solar geoengineering as such, uh, this method goes um, to act on the long wave radiation because serious clouds they have a net warming effect on the climate because they basically trap outgoing long wave radiation by the nature of having this high name ice crystals in them. Uh, so the idea is that you can reduce the amount of uh, ice clouds. You'd find them at maybe sort of 10 kilometers up in the in the troposphere. So if you can see them with uh, very effective ice nuclei, as we call them, uh, you can potentially grow large ice crystals that would just dry out the atmosphere and they would just grow large and fall out. Um, so you're just thinning out the clouds this way um, and uh, you would need a lot less material to do this because you only have some regions where you have this kind of clouds so maybe you would need um, 200 tons of material or something per year so it's quite a lot less than for creating a global blanket in the stratosphere uh, so you could potentially do this with drones or again with aircrafts. Um, and the lifetime of this seeding material would be maybe up to a, a few days to a week or so, so you kind of have to do this continuously. Um, so here is the results from our um, model again. And you see that the temperature response is very dependent on where you have the ice clouds uh, so in the southern hemisphere you have a uh, larger volume of very cold air because it's much colder there, for instance, over Antarctica. 
so you find we found that you get quite a strong cooling signal in the southern hemisphere, uh, and less so in the northern hemisphere. So you still have effects of greenhouse gas warming here, um, and this sort of increase in the temperature gradient between the southern and the northern hemisphere. We found to push the, this tropical rain band northwards, so it shifts further into the northern hemisphere, including more onto land. Um, and you also have an increase generally in the hydrological cycle, uh, partly because you have more sunlight reaching the surface to increase convection, basically, because you're depleting the ice clouds that do reflect some sunshine that have a stronger effect um, in the long wave. So this is the kind of most complicated method <laughs> to, to understand. It's uh, quite a new, new, new topic. Um, next one, moving down in the atmosphere, marine sky brightening. So now we're looking at marine clouds, so clouds over the oceans, just on top of the boundary layers, maybe a couple, couple of, of 500 to two, two, 500 meters to 200 um, to two kilometers up or so um, and these clouds um, they reflect sunlight and have a net cooling effect on the climate and here we have this ship track analogy and each of these streaks here they represent an individual ship that's passing underneath uh, these cloud decks making the clouds brighter uh, and that's because you have uh, more cloud condensation nuclei, as we call it. So you have more little particles from the exhaust of these ships that the, the water vapor can can condense onto. So you get more numerous uh, particle or more numerous cloud droplets, rather, uh, which makes um, the clouds appear brighter. So here you have. Uh, more condensation nuclei and more reflection of the the sunlight and sea salt in itself, uh, which is the idea that you can pump up sea salt from the oceans, uh, which is directly reflective in itself, as you know from looking at your salt mill, it is white stuff, right? So the idea is that you can have this kind of autonomous uh, ocean-going vessels that would pump up the sea salt uh, and inject it. Um, into the atmosphere. But one of the challenges in particular for this method is that sea salt is very sticky, right? You see here by the Dead Sea that it's just clumping into these big lumps. So the challenge, particular engineering challenge is in the mo at the moment is creating these plumes with small enough uh, sea salt uh, particles um, so they're not sticking. Uh, and here's looking at then the temperature and or hydrological recycle, recycle response to marine sky brightening. So we have increased the uh, emissions of sea salt in the tropics and over the oceans. So, so you see this increased cooling over the oceans um, because this is where you're applying the forcing, right? So it's a lot less effective at cooling the large land masses. Uh, and this in turn increases than the 
temperature gradient between the cooler oceans and the warm land uh, and this leads to this sort of monsoon-like effect that tends to shift the precipitation onto land because uh, this, te this temperature gradient is what drives the monsoon to there and also you know the land and sea breezes that we experience um, so here is um, summing up the temperature and precipitation response. So this is, each dot here represents uh, one model year, so it's the global annual mean, and comparing to the pre-industrial. So for instance, for a Paris Agreement target of two degrees, if you reach that through greenhouse gas warming, so this is the green and red, so RCP 4.5 and 8.5. You end up with about 3% increase in the global mean precipitation. Whilst if you reach 2 degrees through reflecting solar radiation, so marine sky brightening or stratospheric aerosol injections, you're around 1.5-2% increase in precipitation. Whilst Serious cloud thinning, on the other hand, it gives you an even higher precipitation increase at 2 degrees than the greenhouse gas warming through these uh, enhanced uh, hydrological cycle uh, effects. So we also have some more methods that we have not addressed in our project uh, for various reasons, uh, including surface uh, brightening there are a number of methods uh, to reflect solar radiation that involve increasing the brightness of the, of the uh, surface. So one idea is to roll out reflective blankets across um, deserts, um, but there are several reasons why we have ruled this out as a plausible idea. Then it would get very dusty and sunny so you need to go out and sweep this so have some auto sweeping all the time so the deployment costs would be very high uh, and also you have you know limited regions where you do have uh, deserts so if you increase the albedo or reflectiveness very much here you can get quite strong um, uh, changes to things like uh, atmospheric circulation and precipitation so it just doesn't seem very uh, good, uh, including you would have affect the local ecosystem uh, and so on, even though um, biodiversity is more than the it shouldn't discount it. Uh, also growing brighter crops, for instance, um, this would have more a regional effect. And also basically painting urban surfaces white, whether it's buildings or or roads or whatever, but if you go to the Mediterranean for your summer holiday, you will see that most of the buildings are already white. So there is limited potential for doing anything here. Um, and also it would have quite a local effect, so it doesn't really fit into the category of large scale. It wouldn't really contribute to the global um, temperatures. Um, but the, these kind of things are already happening. There's a white pavement initiative in LA that they're working on now, so you can see them out uh, painting all the streets white. And then there's ship wake brightening. 
which we haven't considered really either because um, if you're gonna make a ship wake last for more than seconds to minutes you need so much lubricant that you already have laws in place that the rule is out you have the London convention that uh, prevents dumping so you can't really dump anything um, into the sea um, yeah and then finally, space mirrors. Uh, well, we didn't really consider it because of the deployment cost. So here we're talking about placing reflective mirrors or shades into into the into space, for instance, in orbits around the Earth. Um, but costs are coming down. Um, people like Elon Musk are really <laughs> progressing technology, so maybe at one point um, the costs won't be prohibitive, but uh, of course you're susceptible to things like meteorites and so on uh, when you're out in space. But we're, we're doing quite a lot of modeling, theoretical work on this because it can be quite useful in revealing fundamentals of the climate response to reduce um, incoming short wave or solar radiation. Uh, and then you have what we call the termination shock, which is inherent with all of these kind of uh, methods, because yes, they're fast acting, but that means that the, the effects can also um, and abruptly in theory. So if you were at a stage of large-scale deployment and this would, uh, for, for whatever reason, stop, um, then the changes in the surface temperature, for instance, in, would be so rapid. Uh, so this would be really um, at potentially dangerous rates. But um, then again, it's rather unlikely that large-scale deployment would ever be a thing. Um, and if we were hypothetically ever to go down these kind of pathways, then you would think that there would be redundancies in place to, to avoid these kind of uh, <coughs> situations. But we shouldn't neglect it. It's, a, it's an inherent problem of applying aerosols in the atmosphere, they have a short lifetime and you do need to do something about CO2 at the same time if you were ever to do this. Um, yeah, so, these, so this is the concept of these kind of uh, methods. Um, I've shown you theoretical uh, work, which is what we have been doing here in Norway. But there, there's also outdoors activities being planned, in particular for stratospheric aerosol injections. So we have a group at Harvard University in the US who are planning some outdoor testing already this autumn. So they have this stratospheric controlled perturbation experiment, or SCOPEX, um, where they have chosen sites in Arizona in the desert in middle of nowhere where they are planning to start um, doing some testing. So they are working on this stratocruiser as they call it with a maneuverable balloon um, 
that will take this equipment package um, up into the stratosphere. Um, and then they're planning in the first phase, as far as I know, to release about one litre of water. Um, and then you can release that and then go take the stratocruiser up and then go down sorry, into the plume and measure the plume. So you can measure the chemistry and, and the particles and, uh, and everything that's going on um, there. And the next phases will be um, testing different types of uh, aerosols as far as I understand. So that will be uh, things like sulfur compounds and calcium carbonates. Um, but I personally have some concerns around this. I mean, things have a tendency to get a bit messy when you go outside, whether you're uh, intending it or not. I mean, there are all these kind of uh, there, and there are so many things that are not within your hands that you can't really control. So personally, I think that, you know, there's plenty of things that we can work on before we need to take it outside. So there's lots of theoretical modeling uh, we need to do and also lab tests of all of these different kind of aerosols that's, that could be used. But there are, there are still more um, indoor research that's being planned. So as part of CMIP6, so the couple model into comparison project phase six that will found found part of the next IPCC synthesis report. You have already some some work around geoengineering. So here we have the GeoMIP project, the geoengineering model into comparison project, and also CDR MIP. Um, so carbon dioxide removal in its comparison project that will use a number of different earth system models to compare the the climate responses to different kinds of uh, geoengineering. And here we will be contributing also with the Norwegian uh, earth system model. So you will have assessments, further assessment of these um, kind of methods um, also in the upcoming special report from the IPCC on the global warming of one and a half degree uh, targets coming out in October this year. So there are a number of um, open questions around um, geoengineering. Um, I don't know if I, well, we have some time, but I can go through some of them I suppose. So, for instance, I'm not showing the climate responses, but the climate impacts of how this will affect things like freshwater availability, biodiversity, uh, and so on, and coral reefs, for instance. There are all of these other kind of impacts that we have not really addressed yet. And then also, who sets the thermostats? Do we need governance to catch up first? So do we need rules and regulations in place before we even take it outdoors, right? What do the geoengineering coalition look like? So who decides if we're going to do this? What kind of temperatures are we aiming at? Would this between, be between countries or different agencies? Uh, you know, we don't really know how and what kind of shape and form uh, this would be. 
Uh, and how do you define the success of testing or of deployment? And then there's a slippery slope argument. So if you first start testing, then you're testing a little bit more, then you're testing a little bit more, and then you know wh where's the boundary be between you know large-scale field testing and actual deployment? So you're not really thinking about that. You're just doing it, and then suddenly you're there, right? Um, safety nets to prevent sudden termination, this is something we need to think hard about. Then there's obviously the moral hazard argument. So if we know that we have these kind of options, we just reduce the drive for mitigation, right? So we don't need to cut emissions now because it's expensive and this could really save us. Then of course, moral authority is important. Do we have the right? to go up and do this? Do we have the right to play God? So there are some really tough questions there. This, this is just a num some of them. M maybe Hegel also has some more. <laughs> he, he's concerned about um, uh, laser. So my personal thoughts. Um, around doing this kind of research. So what are the risks associated with doing this kind of research? So. Obviously, a slippery slope and moral hazards. Um, although moral hazard, whenever I've been travelling around talking um, to politicians and climate advisers um, on this, they they don't really see it as uh, you know a plan C, some something you can have to come that can come and rescue you if you're in dire need. But it's more. It's more li like a red flag alert. This is really how serious climate change is, and we really need to up our mitigation um, efforts. <coughs> so it's not really a get out of jail free card, and it's my experience that it has not been been seen as this. Then, of course, personally, doing this kind of research, you get uh, accused of many strange things. I. I'm not planning on <laughs> on taking the sun away from you. <laughs> yeah, so just uh, calm down. It's not my intention. Uh, so you get accused of many strange things, and uh, internet trolls they they say all sorts of strange things. This is I apologize to University of Bergen. You got copied into <laughs> these uh, uh, lines on on Twitter. I I don't speak. Spanish, but I think it says something like, no offense of your profile photo, they took my Twitter profile photo and, and had some fun with it and said, I look like a, a buddy in a Hollywood movie. <laughs> so, but I mean, this is a bit uh, of fun and games, but I mean, you do get um, a fair bit of a stick, to put it that way. I mean, getting death threats is, is not really fun but so you have all these climate skeptics and then you have all these kind of uh, chem traders on top of it so you do get quite a lot of uh, heat in all fairness um, but then of course there are risks associated I think with not doing geoengineering research what is what if we end up in a climate emergency with these kind of tipping points is a buzzword I'm not so fond of, but still, what if you're at, at one point, is that a, 
we're saying, you know, look at this weather. I mean, <laughs> it should not be 23 degrees and sunny and foggy. We need to do something about it, or you know, whatever. It could be some extreme cases where we think this is so dire. Three Hurricane Katrinas in one season. We need to to do something about it. Uh, and then really, you need to be in a place of knowledge to make informed decisions um, about whether to go ahead with this or not. And you know, whether you need to have this kind of information, otherwise you might be sent directly to jail if you do go ahead with it, because it might turn out to be more of a disaster than than uh, than not doing it at all. Um, so basically, in the words of Paul Cripson, it would be best if emissions of the greenhouse gases could be reduced so that we would not have to do this um, kind of thing in the first place. Um, currently, this looks like a pious wish he said in 2009, um, shortly after his key paper that came in 2006 that really sparked the research on this. So this is the number of papers with geoengineering in them um, in the web of science search. So you see there's about 120 papers a year roughly uh, discussing geoengineering uh, and it looks like 2018 will be about um, the similar. But then I think we also need to put this into perspective. You should think like 120 papers a year sounds like a lot because if you also look at number of papers that mention climate change, it sort of follows the CO2 emission curves, but then we're up to over 20,000 papers a year. So it's really quite a minimal effort, both in terms of research activity and money that, that, that is put into this. And really when you are thinking about geoengineering and also climate change, you need to think about how it could affect the United Nations Sustainable Development uh, Goals. So are we worse off with or without geoengineering and how would these be affected differently? So I'm reaching the summary time here. Um, Basically, solar geoengineering, you could achieve a cooling fast. We've seen this from the volcanic eruptions, so just months after a big blast, you can have quite a large-scale global cooling. And several degrees of cooling might be possible. The problem is that this treats the symptoms, but not the disease. So it is not a substitute for emission reductions, because you end up with a different-looking climate, even though it might be cooler, it would be a different one compared to without geoengineering and also compared to, for instance, pre-industrial, so any kind of climate that, that we're used to. Uh, so this, these kind of side effects, they are uh, likely, but at the moment they are uncertain. And um, for the moment, the technological readiness level is considered to be low. So we don't yet have the, the technology to, to go out and do this. So it 
solar geoengineer cannot be seen as a plan C solution to the Paris Agreement as of yet. And there will be further assessment in the next cycle of the IPCC report. So you can look to there for more information or you can look at this um, report, the EU trace report that we wrote for the, for the EU. Uh, we had a project on this, it came out in 2015. Um, so you can look up, up this one for more information as well or just um, get in touch if you like. So I think uh, I think I'll stop there. Thank you. So I have prepared some lyser on Norsk. Så da blir det kanskje en balanse. Så mitt navn er Helge Drange, og jeg skal si litt om hva jeg tenker om dette. Det blir, kan, det blir mer personlig, mine vurderinger. Og det, jeg har ikke tenkt å gå gjennom en god liste med argument for og mot. Det finnes. Men eh, presentasjonen som vi fikk, den eh, egentlig summerer opp eh, veldig mye, og de fleste av de argumentene kan man både si er en støtte til, eller det er et problem med og, eh, klimafiksing, eller manipulering, eller geoengineering. Og denne titelen her, den er vel kanskje den mest eksplisitte jeg kommer med, så jeg mener jo at det er en eh, do kollektiv dårskap som gjør at vi kommer i det uføret som vi er i, og da er spørsmålet, hva gjør vi? Kan vi gjøre? Eh, og jeg faktisk begynte med dette som doktorgradstudent, så jeg hadde en publikasjon i Nature i 1992, i lag med min veileder da, som var Peter Haugan, og vi så på hvordan vi kunne, da sånn rent sånn, la oss si teknisk, hente ut CO2 fra en avgass, røykgass, og det er mulig. Og så kan du løse CO2-en i vann, og da får du en tung veske, og den kan du da frigjøre i havet. Uh, og så jeg, jeg jobbet litt med disse, i, i disse, uh, med disse tingene da, noen år. Men det var, det var da, og, og ikke nå. Og jeg skal si hvorfor. <laughs> og dette er ikke en kritikk mot de som jobber med geoengineering. Men jeg tenker det at vi, mange av oss har muligheten til å gjøre valg. Så hva gjør vi et valg basert på? Så da er det A, hvordan er vi, hvor er vi, og da har vi sett det at CO2-utslippene, de for det første, de øker frem til 2006, så den figuren går fra 1960 til 2100, og på høyre siden så er det CO2-utslipp i gigaton karbon per år, og det er noe stort, det tilsvar, ja, det, det er noe stort, vi trenger ikke si mer. Og FNs klimapanel, de har fire scenarioer, så vi bare lukker øynene og fortsetter som i dag. Så da går vi fra disse cirka 10 gigaton karbonene per i dag til opp til 30. Og så det er to mellomscenarioer. Og så er det dette siste 2-gradersmålet da, som har negativ utslipp. Så alle som jobber med FNs klimapanel, de får på en måte servert en form for geoengineering. Som jeg vil påstå ikke har vært diskutert. Jeg har i hvert fall ikke kjenner, jeg kjenner ikke til den diskusjonen åp, eh, sånn åpent i forskerfora. Eh, det er klart at noen har jobbet med dette, men det er noe som ligger default. Dette, forhold, dette skal vi forholde oss til. Og de har noen navn som er helt oppløs, så 
så det kan vi helt glemme. Og så var det det at de faktiske utslippene her, 2006, de viser med svart strek, og til 2017 så er vi der. Så vi følger egentlig mer eller mindre den business as usual scenarioen. Så dette er jo bekymringsfullt. Og FNs klimapanel sa det da, når den siste hovedrapport kom ut i 2013 og 2014, at ja, den... RCP 2,6 som skal være i tråd med togradersmålet, det involverer da å fjerne CO2 fra atmosfæren på en eller annen måte. Og det er nok mulig, men det er ingen i dag som helt vet hvordan det skal gjøres, og kostnader med dette og så videre. Ok, så har vi da plan B, og som vi så tidligere, så gjør jo vulkanene dette, at de spyr ut partikler og gasser høyt i atmosfæren, så skygger for solen, og når det blir skygget for solen, så faller temperaturen. Så dette fungerer. Naturen gjør det. En gang hver tiende år, kanskje to ganger hver tiende år, kanskje en gang hver tjuende år. Det siste store vulkanutbruddet, det var Mount Pinatubo, tidlig på 90-tallet. Så det er vel på tide med en ny. Vi ligger faktisk etter planen, eller skjema. Skjema, ikke planen, men skjema. Men vi snakker, hvem er vi? Det tenker jeg. Hvem er vi? Og hvem er vi? Og da er det jo sånn at det har jo kommet noen litt mindre lyse skyer på himmelen. Er dette vi? For eksempel. Så vi kunne jo tenke oss det at statsledere i demokratier og nasjoner med tradisjon innenfor kunnskap at de faktisk var lydhør til kunnskap USA i dag er vel et eksempel på det motsatte og så har du da det andre er det dette som er vi som er da motsvaret fra Frankrike så dette er jo et stort spørsmål og blir det forsket på klimamanipulasjon eller fiksing? Ja, det blir det, men det er hundre publikasjoner i året. Bjerknesenter i Bergen publiserer 200, kanskje, innenfor klimaforskning. Så det er ett miljø i en liten by, i et lite land. Så vi forstår det at det er ikke stor aktivitet. Så det å tro at geoengineering eller klimafiksing er noe som er forstått og vi kan ta det ut i virkeligheten, det er helt misforstått. Og så, vi møter jo alle noen, og noen ganger så blir jeg litt mørkeredd. Så dette er bare et eksempel på hva som foregår. Og det er da bare, ja, det er mer en sånn sidebemerking, sikkerhetsaspekter. FNs sikkerhetsråd, de diskuterte geoengineering i 2007. Og du kan si at dette var jo ikke det mest skremmende, kanskje. Men det var jo ikke uten grunn. Og en sentral forsker som også ble vist tidligere, som er da Ellen Robbock, som har jobbet mye med effekten av vulkaner på klima og partikler, aerosoler på klima, han fikk en telefon fra CIA, sier han, i 2015. Og da var spørsmålet, er det mulig å fange opp, finne, om det er noen som prøver å kontrollere vår klima? Og er det mulig for oss å kontrollere noen andres klima? 
Så då var det CIA så lurte på dessa tingena här. Och så har han eh, detta är ju ett intervju då så vi vill ju antro att det är korrekt. Och eh, så det han så står här nere då vad är er fel med med detta? Menar han då? Jo, det var det att eh, CIA CIA de wants to figure out how to control the global weather. Och det är er klart, hvis någon gör detta så må ju USA CIA var på toppen. Det förstår man. Så detta går ganska högt upp och jag vet också om flera som har varit i möte för exempel med CIA. Så det kan ju göra oss lite uh, uh, rädd på en måte. Samtidigt så är er det kanske kunskap som må till för att kunna bäst möjligt argumentera för uh, saken. Och här är er en annan uh, ledarartikel i då är er det i science och här är er det akkurat det samma argumentet. Suppose uh, anta framtida styrelsemakter uppdagar uh, Norge uppdagar att det är er någon som gör något. Så vad gör vi? Hur kan vi respondera på detta? Är er det så att en industriaktör kan sända några raketter upp och så är er vi igång med en land klimatmanipulering. Så tillbaka till vem är er vi? Så det är er upplagt detta är er oss. och det är er egentligen detta som gör att jag tänker att jag vill bruka min tid på andra ting än geoengineering. så ett exempel på vem vi är. Er. Det är er ett paper som kom ut nyligen. Så det är er då ett försök på att estimera biomassen på allt levande på jorden. Så det är er något här. Det var svårt att se, men det är er människa. Och människa utgör då 0,01 av total levande biomassa på jorden. Och det är er tre gånger fler virus i vikt än oss och det är er ormar och det er tre gånger fler och fisk er 12 gånger och insekter 17 gånger och sopp 200 gånger och bakterier 1200 gånger och planter 7500 gånger större biomassa än oss. Så vi utgör alltså när det gäller biomassa, vi är er en otroligt succesfull art, vi utgör 0,01 av all levande biomassa på jorden. Men samtidigt i löpet av vår levetid så har vi utryddat 83 % av vilda landpattedyr. 80 % av sjöpattedyr, 50 % av plantorna och 15 % av fisken. Så vi har ett otroligt stort fotavtryck. Och då tänker jag, visst jag kan bruka min tid som forskar. Är det inte då kombination av fotavtrycket plus den cocktailen av allt det vi gör som jag kan som jag önskar och vara med på och bidra till. Så jag tänker att detta måste vara det viktigaste. Jag ser inte det att geoengineering inte är er där. Men jag tänker att detta att vi påverkar vår klode på alla möjliga måter. Och detta tränger vi mycket mer kunskap om och den kunskapen måste ut. Detta måste vara ledande tänker jag för mig personligt. Och Vad är er det? Är er det vetenskapen vetenskapen eller det tekniska de tekniska utmaningarna som står i fokus när det gäller geoengineering och här är er det då en lista över andra faktorer som man gärna vill mena vad är er viktigare. Det är er sociala, etiska, juridiska och politiska frågor knutet till styring. 
övervakning, kontroll och så vidare av detta med klimatmanipulering. Så och personligen då som naturvetenskaplig forskare så är väl jag vara är väl tillhöra den gruppen som kan ge input, men det dessa andra miljöerna är i liten grad på barn. Så vi har kommit väldigt kort, vill jag se. Si. Och som också Helena nämnt här så finns det inte övervakande, kontrollerande institutioner idag. Så detta är en jätteutmaning, visst man ser för sig att man ska implementera klimatmanipulation på en annan måte. Så när det gäller hur man ser på detta då så tänker jag det att jag önskar att vara med på öka nyfikenheten till naturen och inte vara med och fjärna oss från hur naturen fungerar. Och jag menar det är viktigt att vi ger kommande generationer färre och inte större utmaningar. så lösningen för mig måste vara att få ner klimatgasutsläppen. Och det är lätt att se självklart. Eh och fjärna orsaken till problemet som nämnde och det måste vara mycket viktigare än att glatta över realiteterna. Eh för vår princip menar jag är viktig. Vi idag så har vi en klimatutmaning men den är vi fött in i. Och det är illa nog. Frågan är är det forskel på det och igångsätta tiltak för att böta på det problemet vi har när vi känner till eh lösningarna. Och och så är det också som det blev nämnt att klimatmanipulering det är absolut inte ett magiskt tiltak eller ett alternativ till utsläppsreduktioner. Och det det är att skygga för sol. Det för till att jordens temperatur vill falla ned, men visst vilket samtidigt reducera CO2-utsläppen så vill havsursningen för exempel fortsätta som för. Så det är inte snack om det ena kan ersätta det andra. I i i bästa eller värsta fall så måste vi göra bägge delar eller vi må också få ner klimatgasutsläppen. Och så vill jag tänka det att klimatmanipulation, geoengineering, där kan vi väl även se vi kan kunna igångsätta det där som det är till gode för mänskligheten. Och värma mänskligheten och jordens ekosystemer. Och de tiltaken är de måste också vara reversibla. Så visst vi startar nu så är det likat att vi måste fortsätta i tusen år för att undgå en farlig situation eller har vi möjlighet att backa upp. Så det är så det är ett väldigt viktigt poäng. Och så tänker jag det att all forskning på klimatmanipulation det må vara skall vara tillgänglig för alla alltid. Och det är ju slik vi liker och känner forskningen, men med en gång, visst industrien kommer in och får intresse blir får intresser eller det snackar om eh pengar eh makt så är inte det så upplagt längre. Och testing, prövning, igångsättning. Det tänker jag det är väl inte rätt att det ska göras tillfälligt, det bör i så fall koordineras på en land på ett internationellt nivå. Och vi är absolut inte där. Och kommersiella aktörer är väl inte lika att eh, Norsk Hydro var den som eh, sent eh, 
raketter i atmosfären för att på en måte styrte detta med hur många av partiklar som skulle gå in eller andra aktörer. och så är er det viktigt att skilja då mellan indörs forskning liksom. Vi har gjort stort sett då fram till idag, alltså det är att försöka förstå systemet och det är att faktiskt gå utendörs och göra experimenter och också hvordan, hvor stor ska denne, eller bör denne forskningen vara. Eh, ja, så det är er noen momenter och eh, uansett om man snakker om eh, att vi har en plan B så har vi absolut ingen planet B. Yes, så det var bara noen lösrevna kommentarer från min sida. Så, det ja, tack till Helge och tack till Nanna. är uh, er det någon frågsmål så får också som testera. Det var 150 Norge kom lite sent så det kunde ha sagt någon men Norge, hur stort är det efter 50 Norge? Kommer det sent så det är inte så mycket som det är inte så mycket som det är inte aktiva projekt så vi har haft um, två EU-projekt EU uh, så långt. Det ena gick på att skriva den här assessment reporten till EU som vi gav ut i 2015. Så det är projektet men för det så har vi ett projekt som heter Implik som har er också stöttat av EU och andra partnerer um, från Tyskland och Frankrike och England och i Norge så var det universitetet i Oslo och meteorologisk institut som var involverat. Så efter dessa två projekten så fick vi stöd från Norges forskningsråd från klimatforskningsprogrammet till ett projekt vi skrev söka om i 2013 och startade ett projekt i 2014. Och det hade ett budget på runt 7 miljoner kronor. Och då hade vi i Oslo, Meteorologisk institut och också Uniklima här i Bergen som var med på det projektet. Så vi ligger väl Norge som nation ligger rangerat som cirka nummer 15 i antal publikationer eh, som har bidragit till geoengineering av under under typ av science och sånt där Helga jag visste så det det är er minimalt med forskningsmedel som går till geoengineering men det har varit noe också från från Norge till det. Och det har också istället öppnat till att stötta någon forskning vidare utan att vi har nog direkt planer om det akkurat nu. Ja, vi står politiker så tänker du väl först och främst på vad är er dyrt? Vad är er den billigaste lösningen? Och 
Eh, jag tänker väl på geoengineering, det hörs ju ut som ett dyrt projekt stort sett. Eh, och det vill ju då vara lätt att koncentrera det till i rike landet. Men problemet globalt är ju att du har en dubbel exposure. De fattigaste landen är de som blir utsatt mest när havnivåer stiger. Eh, och också de kostnader som har blivit brakt med i den klimatändringen har ju också visat att det är störst i de fattiga landen. Så alltså detta med de rike land som kan göra något, ja, men eh, är egentligen av geoutstyrning den, eh, den riktiga lösningen. Men jag tänker ofta att, eh, ett annat poäng, eh, att eh, reduktion av utsläppen är ju det som jag har sagt väldigt, väldigt viktig. Men är det inte någon av tillfällen där är möjligt att göra det på en ganska enkel måte? Jag tänker först och främst på internationell skipsfart, karbonskipsfarten, som i tillägg till karbondioxid brukar den tyngsta oljen som tungsta oljen som också skapar massor av sot som lägger sig på isen och som reducerar kanske då ökar då nedsmältningen. Eh, det borde vara något marknad som nationen borde gå in för och få till internationella avtal på på internationell skipsfart. Eh, ja, det var inte bara det. Jag tar upp flera viktiga poänger här. Villi motdyrt. En av grunderna till att vi inte har avfärd solar geoengineering är att det faktiskt faller i kategorin billig sammanlignat med utsläppsreduktion och så karbonfangst och fjärrningteknologier. Så för exempel just du vill köra den kloden med låt oss si, en grad med partiklar i stratosfären så antar man, selv om estimaten er usikre, på at det kan koste mellom 30 til 100 milliarder dollar i året. Og det er faktisk ikke så dyrt. Jeg vet ikke hvor mange Trump har, men det ville vært overkommelig for, for til og med privatpersoner. Um, dette med uran er også veldig viktig. Det er nå blitt satt opp uh, en pot som er funding til uh, de ska gå till Uland så de kan göra sin egen forskning på det här. det heter The Decimals Fund som är ledd av en som heter Andy Parker som jag har jobbat lite med och där där är det då en viss mängd pengar då som ska fördelas till olika forskare i Uland så de kan forska på hur de där vill faktiskt påverka de och deras egna särintressen. Ehm det mesta parten av forskningen så långt har varit från The Global North så då typisk det som är typisk på klimatforskning idag inkluderat EU land och också Kina och USA. Ehm sist poängen var väl det med shipping. Ehm nu har International Maritime Organization FN organet som reglerar shipping. Det har satt en ny lag om att Svovelinnholdet i disse bunker fjols, disse tungvårene som skipene går på, det skal reduseres fra 3,5 til en halv prosent fra 2020 av. Så da blir det mindre svovel um, i, som kommer ut, og det er jo 
bra i och för sig bortsett från att Swovel har en avskyldig effekt som jag skulle fick den där figuren jag visste med dessa chip tracks där du får dessa vita stripen under skyarna så att interaktionen med skyer gör att skiftningen faktiskt har en en avskyldig effekt i det korta loppet i det långa loppet är det ju CO2 effekten som är uppenbar så det måste de göra med uh, men den här black carbon så sot uh, på snö är en störst virkning i Arktis så, så det är också viktigt att kutta det men jag har ju också gemo en ny uh, regulering upp mot 2050 så ska utsläpp från shipping alltså de specifierade väl att det ska vara klimatgasutsläppen från shipping att reduceras eller ska halveras sammanlignat med 2008-nivåerna fram till 2050 så det är ting som sker då men också det med kutting av svavel det kommer att ha en kortsiktig uppvärmande effekt dessvärre. Nej, då har jag ett själv och det var ju lite så här nämnt att det kommer att det måste vara reverserbara risk man ska göra det till. Och det blir väldigt gärna på att man måste slippa ut och alltså svavel i atmosfären vill inte det och kunna ha det inte reversibla effekter. Ja, um, da tror jeg det kommer litt an på hvordan du, du gjør det, om du gjør det, altså hvor lenge du gjør det, og hvor mye. Så, hvis, ok, vi kan kalle alle scenarier som inneholder solar engineering eller solvendopslipp i svaren på hypotetiske og urealistiske, men det mer realistiske som eh, blir diskutert er å slippe ut kun litt så att du kan till exempel köra från 2 grader till halvan grad för exempel och så finner du att det är kritiskt att behålla eller begränsa uppvärmningen till halvan grad och då tänker du inte så mycket men du måste kanske göra en stund för att vi kan kutta utsläpp och fjärna CO2 från atmosfären samtidigt men gör det till en liten grad så så är så är det reversibelt. Men hvis du föser på med 100 megaton i intervis av år så är det mer är mer skeptiskt som till vad som vill ske då 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 kan det vara att du kommer inte helt i ehm planet states. Lytte til et foredrag i serien Forum for vitenskap og demokrati. Ansvarlig for foredraget var Ingjerd Pilskog, postdoktor ved Uni Research Klima. Opptak og redigering er utført av Ingjerd Pilskog, postdoktor ved Uni Research Klima.